Father, we thank you again for the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we ask that that great teacher, the supreme teacher, would teach our hearts tonight. For in the end, and in the final analysis, it's how well we know you. It's not a fact here or a fact there, but it's having a deeper appreciation of you as the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who works all things after the counsel of his will, the one who is moving history toward its grand consummation with the reigning of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We ask in his name that our hearts be enlightened. Amen. Tonight completes the introduction to the course. I've tried last time and this time we're going to try to finish off the preliminaries so that if you will take the notes that are handed out tonight, read them, and if you will read carefully now for good observations, Genesis 9, 10, and 11. Those three chapters of Genesis for next time. Because next time we're going to start working with the text and start deriving it. And we, we have to assume that you've read it. Um, I'm not going to read it in the, in the class because we simply are trying to be efficient use of our time. Um, for our purposes, it really doesn't matter what translation you have. Uh, as I said in the beginning, the co- this, this Bible series is not a verse-by-verse exposition so much as it is to get a grand sweep of things, uh, to put the grand sweep of things in perspective so that as we come into contact with the world system and the world systems come in contact with us, uh, we are perceptive. We recognize uh, where the world is coming from, where the Word of God is coming from, and where the two collide. So this is why you'll see a theme throughout all of this that's very antithetical. It's very antagonistic. First, we have the Word. Then we have the world's denial of the Word because we want to study the collision between the Word and the world. And you'll hear this repeated ad nauseum, but it's a basic principle I follow. And that is, there's an axiom that I've learned over the years uh, in working with the Word of God and just... Um, in my daily Christian life of living in the world system and thinking about its impact on me. Finally, in the last analysis, you will either let the world interpret the Word of God for you or you must take the Word of God to interpret the world around you. One or the other principle will ultimately rise and become supreme in your heart. Either the Word of God will be used to interpret the world around you, or you will find, in a passive mode, you will find yourself reading the Word of God through the eyes of the world system. It can't be both ways, folks. It's going to be one way or the other way. In one way, you are spiritually active. You are obedient to the Lord, and you're in conflict. And and I don't think there's a person here tonight or anywhere that just really likes and enjoys perpetual conflict. But unfortunately, we live in an abnormal universe that's fallen. And we are in perpetual conflict. The only area where we aren't in perpetual conflict is in our hearts when we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and we have the assurance of the Holy Spirit. Then we have peace. But that's the only real peace we have today. But what happens is, because we really don't like conflict, we try to avoid it, and we try to make peace prematurely. And so we compromise. We find ourselves compromising, and then, of course, we find out really, gee, in the long run, that doesn't give us peace anyway. So we might as well take our lumps. And that's what this course is all about, is to encourage you that you can stand there and take it. And that the world system is really a lot of hot air. When you come right down to it, a lot of these assaults on the Word of God, a lot of the doubts that are created in our minds, a lot of the unbelief around us that sounds so erudite when you hear it, turns out, upon really careful analysis, to be a bunch of baloney. So, that's what we're looking at. We're going to look at some of the hot air and baloney. And that, we, we did it last year. We went through Genesis, and we looked, took those first four uh, events. So, I want to review, 
some of these events, and we're going to go kind of fast tonight. Um, basically, what we're doing is uh, six months in the next 50 minutes. So this is a kind of a review. Um, but if you are new, then it's essential that I do this. And if you were here last year, uh, it'd be good review. You can't get enough review of the Word of God I found. The Lord has to teach me something 55 and a half times before I finally get it anyway, and then I forget it. So, review won't hurt. Okay? Alright, the first event that we dealt with last time, uh, last, uh, last year, was creation. And what I want to do is go back to this same diagram and look at those first two events of the Bible. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Those are fundamental events. Those are real events. We're not talking mythological history. Now, that's the way you will be taught to read the Word of God in the classroom. In academia, they will have courses the Bible as literature. And this is the Hebrew idea of the creation of the universe. Isn't that neat? And then we go to the American Indians and we see their idea of the creation of the universe. We've got to be fair to everybody. And we go to the Oriental and we hear about their idea of the universe. And we all put it in a little pot here. It's a cafeteria of cosmologies. And we go and we can take our pick. Now that's the way we're taught in, this, in the society at large. Because it's arrogant to assume that one and one only people have the truth. We're a democracy here. We believe everybody has the truth. The global village. And so how dare a Christian get up and say that only one subset of the human race has been given the truth. Sure, it turns out that's really not what the Bible's saying, but anyway, that's the caricature. So when we look at creation and the fall, we are treating these as historic events that were observed by God and observed by men and reported as historic events in Scripture. These are not speculations. They're not projections of the Hebrew imagination in the ancient Near East. These are historical events that actually occurred. And because they did occur, now it turns out that we have certain implications. And the implications, remember we said, we'll go over this again, because you cannot get enough of this basic point. And that is that when we look at the... Two options on creation, we have one major difference, one big partition. And if you can lump all of the other cosmologies in the world, basically go on, on this side. With the exceptions that we noted last year, where you have these little strange tribal phenomena that occur on practically every continent, where missionaries will go in where no missionaries have gone before and they will find little remnants and pieces of the truth of Genesis. And it is very surprising. And the secular anthropologist really doesn't have too much of an answer for this one because believing in evolution as he does and believing the Bible was just sort of created in the imagination of a few Jews in the ancient Near East, he can't figure out why these other tribes in other continents of other races have these pieces. And there's been all kinds of explanations that it's somehow this deep depth psychology or something. But we know the answer. The answer is, very simple, all the tribes have come from Noah and Noah's sons. So they all had the truth at one time. It's just dropped out through the sinful mind, the carnal mind, which is an enmity with God, can't be submissive to God. And so therefore, it works subliminally to distort and pervert the truth. So you have perversions of the truth all over the human race. So we have these two things, and the partition that divides these belief systems is belief or disbelief in the ex nihilo creator, the creator that creates from nothing. God is not a part of a process. In the ancient myths, this, this side, this belief side, usually God, the gods and goddesses propagated the universe out of their bodies. Their bodies were the universe. So there's a continuum between God, man, angels, semi-gods, to rocks. It's all part of one continuum. And that began in the ancient world. It continues in Eastern religion. It's part of Western philosophy. It's in modern theology and in modern historical science. 
So it's not true that Darwin started it. It goes far, far more uh, back than that. And the key there to remember is this is the ultimate environment. If you push it back and keep pushing back to the basics and beyond the basics and what's behind the basics, finally, here's what you arrive at. You've got an infinite universe that is impersonal. There's not a being out there. There may be gods and goddesses, but they're just uh, greater versions than man. Sort of Dr. God and Mr. Man. But there's just degrees of differences. There's not a qualitative difference between God and man, just a quantitative, just a size difference. So there's nobody that's ultimately in charge on this side of the house. Then we come over here to the Bible side, and we find that this has certain implications, and the big one that we want to review is that we have an infinite God, but the ultimate environment, we talk about environmentalism, the ultimate environment is God, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are the ultimate environment, not nature, not a gas cloud, not a cosmic universe. But behind that is the Father and Son and Holy Spirit of Scripture. And that's what we've got to learn because everything else in life follows. The temptation when we, we get frustrated over a problem what we're getting solicited to by the world system, we're getting this solicitation, this temptation, to think that it's stupid to trust in the God of the Bible because he really isn't, doesn't count. That ultimately behind him there's this. And if you analyze it, you'll see that in every single day of the pressures and the temptations and the choices and the beliefs and the doubts and the struggles hinge on one of these two principles. This is going on all the time in our souls. The debate, who is ultimately in charge? What is my ultimate environment? So we talked about that last time, and we said that those are the key differences. Then we went on and we said there's the fall of man. And the fall in the universe is also very, very significant because this has all kinds of implications which we want to spell out in a little clearer detail tonight by way of review. There are only two ways of handling evil. Now, if I were a non-Christian and I wanted to attack the biblical faith, that's where I would strike. I would strike, not at evolution, but I would strike at evil. Why can you Christians argue that God is in charge, he's good, and he allows all this evil to go on? It's a very common argument. But let's look at that argument a little more carefully in terms of the great ideas. Again, I've diagrammed this so there's one view and another view. There's only two views. Not three, not six, not 102. There's only two views. And they start where the creation left us. Namely, if we start with a biblical view, we have a personal infinite creator as the ultimate cause of all things. In other words, if he's really the infinite personal creator, he is also in control of evil. If he wasn't in control of evil, then he wouldn't be the infinite personal creator. So he is the ultimate environment even behind evil. That's the scriptural position. The non-Christian has to believe that out there, there's nothing but mystery and impersonal processes, laws of physics. That's the ultimate environment. An evil, whatever it is, it must be seen against that background. So we start with those two things again. Not three, just two things. Now let's see what happens. And here is a radical thing. And this has very practical implications. I want to take a few minutes tonight to spell it out in the practical terms of everyday life. But I'm going to start with a, just a general diagram. And I'd like it if, if you, in your margins of your notes, I know I didn't put this in the notes this time, but if you can draw this diagram out, it will help later because we're going to start dealing with little subsets of it. If this is correct, that the Bible's assertion that the ultimate environment is a personal infinite creator, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if the Bible is correct in saying that this God is absolutely good, absolutely good, meaning by absolutely good, that he defines what good is. His character is the ideal good. Then he is always good. 
He always has been good. He always will be good. There never has been a lapse at any point in time of His goodness. That's the ultimate environment. If that's the case, remember, here's the difference. And I want you to see this very carefully. And you might note this down if you draw this out in your notes. You want to notice that on the biblical basis, there are two levels of existence. Two levels of existence. The creator level and the creature level. On the non-Christian basis, there is only one level of existence. All things. The universe, man, rocks, molecules, bugs. All things. There's just one level of existence. Everything else are, are, are categories. But in the Bible, there are two levels of existence. This is a finite existence that began at a point. The creation. In contrast to the Creator that never began. The creation began, and when it left God's fingertips in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, which was the end of the creation narrative there, God says he looked at his handiwork and his conclusion of evaluating his quality of his work was what? It was very good. His own qualification. And by the way, I remind you, and particularly for guys out in the business world and, and, and doing labor, it's comforting to know, isn't it, that the first picture you have of God is he is a blue-collar laborer working with his hands. Now, you talk about a doctrine of labor. Here you have God visualizing what it is he wants to build. Then he builds it, and then he backs off and he looks at it and he says, that's neat. It's the picture of God as a workman. The very first picture that God gives to us of himself is that he is a laborer. He is working. He is productive. And he enjoys it. And by the way, he's doing that before the fall. I think I have some of my sons sometimes think that the work started with the fall. And a lot of us think that because it's so toilsome. But that's not true. Labor began before the fall. Labor is not a curse. Labor has been cursed by virtue of the fall, but labor pre-existed the fall of man. So, we have the creation here. It is very good. So the creature, at this secondary level, the creation existed in a good state. That means that we as Christians can envision the material universe sinless. We can envision men and women sinless. We can envision nature sinless without natural evil, without moral evil. That's a corollary to Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 2, 3. It's a corollary. You don't like it? Well, that's the text. Sorry, I didn't write that. That's the text. All we're showing here is what the text says. Now, at this point, we have the introduction of evil, whether it's Satan falling or whether it's Adam falling. point is, they both fell after they were created, some time after they were created. Then we have the introduction of evil. Now, starting at this point, existence becomes abnormal. All existence becomes abnormal. We do not live in a normal existence. We have never existed in a normal environment since the fall. Now think about the implications of this. Uh, we, we haven't got time tonight because it was zipping through this like a buzzsaw. But I think some of you who think a little bit about statistics and surveys can immediately see a little problem here, can't we? If I do a survey of how 8,000 people act or 10,000 people think, what am I surveying? Am I surveying something and getting my bell-shaped curve and thereby defining a norm? No, not biblically, am I? Because what I am I surveying is a fallen set of human beings. So what I am surveying is aberrant, depraved, perverted behavior. And what I get with my bell-shaped curve at the center of my mean 
is a wonderful average of perversion. This is what was wrong with the so-called Kinsey Report. Went around and asked people about their sex habits. And he came out and said, the normal person does this. No, it's not the normal person does this. This is the average pervert that does this. <laughs> so, the, that, it affects your statistics. All right, then we have this third point in the second line of existence, and that is, God eventually will separate the good from the evil. People don't like to hear this. What well, is this heaven and hell talk? Ooh, how offensive. No, no, it isn't offensive. This is the solution to the problem. There comes a point in time when this abnormal universe, God looks at and He says, that's it. Game is over. Period. And at that point, we have this eternal separation. It has to be eternal. Because we don't go through this cycle of history again, and again, and again, and again, and again, by reincarnation of some sort, some cyclic view. The idea of an eternal separation of good and evil is the ultimate answer to the whole question. So to compromise on the heaven-hell talk is to blow away the whole, the whole picture. That's essential an eternal heaven and eternal hell. Because that's what keeps this thing structured. That's why we have an answer to good and evil. Now let's look at that bottom line here. Now let's suppose we say, oh, that's just a lot of Jewish tradition. Alright, let's look down what the option is. Don't like that? Let's see what the other we have in our cafeteria today. We have good and evil existing forever. And we define that as normal. Now, how do you like that for size? That's the option of biblical faith, folks. Remember I said tonight? What did I say? The world is full of hot air and baloney. I'm pointing out to a big slab of it right here. Bunch of hot air and baloney talk. What they've got is an eternal existence of good and evil, and the perceptive non-Christian has seen this for centuries, and that's precisely why in the East... You have people going into, like in Buddhism, they want to go to nirvana. Do you understand why they want to go to nirvana? Anybody wants to go to nirvana to get out of this mess. What's nirvana? Non-existence. It's the only solution. You can't even kill yourself because you don't know if maybe after you kill yourself, your soul keeps on existing. What do I do then? So the Eastern people have thought this through much more carefully than the West. And they say, it's, suicide's not the answer, because you might come back and be, you know, your cat. Or you could come back on the, on the cycle of reincarnation and be a bug. So, the point there is that they want to go to non-existence. And they have to choose that, because it's the only way to get out of this thing. There is no solution. So, there are the options. You might not like the biblical position, but then if that's so, be prepared to live, the out, live out the, the other side of the coin. See? So this is an example of the, the background, the theory behind good and evil. But what we want to do is now we want to discuss that in a little more practical terms because we did that last, last time, last year, and I want to just remind you of some of these things. What, does, what is the key idea behind this chart. How can we summarize this chart here? The biblical position. All right, there are two, two ideas that hinge on the biblical view of evil. The one idea I've introduced right there, and that is that evil, biblically, is bounded. Use that word for a minute, because I want to I take another little... Step. So, what we're saying is that evil has boundaries. On the non-biblical view, evil has no boundaries because it goes on forever. In the Christian position, it starts at the fall. It did not begin before that. It starts at the fall and is separated and confined. It's confined in the lake of fire, ultimately. The garbage dump of history. And it doesn't get out of there. It stays there. 
So evil is bounded versus being unbound. But there's a second corollary to this that's not on this diagram. So I want you to take this second, second idea down because we have to deal with that too. It becomes a very essential in dealing with our Christian way of life and salvation. The cause of evil is man sinning. It's rebelliousness on the part of man that has caused this, or in the case of the angels, rebelliousness by the angels. No, creature rebellion causes evil. Creature rebellion means guilt before an infinite holy God. So, evil is associated, and this is, this is what the world does not like to hear, the world would love to explain evil away as a sort of a neuron disturbance inside the skull. But what the Christian position says, you might have neuron disturbances inside your skull, but that's not what caused the ultimate fall. What caused the ultimate fall is, I know what God's will is, and to you. That's what causes the problem. So, in the biblical position, the cause involves guilt over creature rebellion. On the non-Christian position, isn't this convenient? On the non-Christian, non-biblical position, the cause of evil is, isn't there. There isn't any ultimate cause on our part. We're victims. So, in the non-Christian, ultimately, we're all victims of this mystery. So, in one sense, you have biblical guilt and responsibility. On the other hand, you have irresponsibility and victimization. You know, poor me. I was born with a... Or poor me. My mother dropped me on my head out of the cradle. Or poor me. Somebody said nasty things to me when I was five years old. Or poor me, and something else happened. It's always poor me. I don't take responsibility for anything. It's, every, it's always my environment that causes the problem. Victimization. And folks, you can't get saved by blaming your environment. And you can't live the Christian life by blaming your environment. Somewhere, you have to take responsibility. Someplace. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ without taking responsibility for your personal sin. So this is why all this victimization stuff that's going on in the hot air and baloney talk is undermining our evangelism. It's becoming extremely difficult to win people to Jesus Christ. They can, we can get them into a religious service and go through a lot of hoopla and nothing comes out the end. And you wonder, well, what, what's happening here? What's going on? Because half the world now thinks they're victims. So before you even get to the gospel, you have to somehow say, Yoo-hoo! Wake up! You're guilty! And to do that, they have to have an idea of a God who is the creator of the universe to whom they're guilty. This is big, hot stuff, and it is very difficult to communicate. And sometimes it has to be communicated in a wordless way by your life. This is why living the Christian life is important. Because sometimes people are immune to what you say. It's got to hit them in the face about what you do. They've got to see something. So, that's the, the battleground is over these basic ideas. Now, we, uh, because of our time tonight, I can't go into this in detail, but we did, remember, last time say that we have certain what we called coping tactics. Well, my pen doesn't cope very well. Coping tactics. Now, these we listed as 11 reasons why there's suffering in the world. Eleven, at least there's probably an infinite number, but the, the, what we did is we isolated 11 of these from the scriptures. And we said some of it is direct suffering, and suffering can also be indirect. And the Bible gives us certain categories of suffering. Now, this doesn't, doesn't make it hurt less, but here's what this will do. If you'll think about this, a suffering situation in your personal life or trying to work with, with a suffering situation, if you will remember that in the Christian position, since we have evil bounded, 
the whole problem of suffering and evil in our lives is a discussion of why does he allow the boundary here and he doesn't move it over there. So the way the Christian copes with suffering and evil, we, we cope with a discussion, what is the boundary? In other words, what's the latitude of evil in, in, that I'm experiencing? It's all under his control. Why has he done this? Anybody that's got half smarts has a solution. And the solution is anesthetize yourself. Take drugs. Do alcohol. Do something else. I mean, the, all these things act as a, as a painkiller. This is why you got Kevorkian running around. Kevorkian wasn't the first guy to figure out how to reduce pain. The drunk in the bar figured that one out centuries before Kevorkian came along. All of it is a grand scheme of an anesthesia. You know, you pick yours. Somebody picks drink, somebody picks drugs, somebody picks sex, somebody picks something else. But it basically, it's an anesthetization attempt to get rid of the pain. So just saying no to drugs isn't a problem. It's hard to do. I can't say no any more than I can say no to a painkiller when I'm in hurting. The problem is deeper than just saying no. The problem is, what's the big picture going on here in my life? So we said that these coping tactics vary. We said the Bible gives certain reasons for direct suffering. One of the reasons for direct physical death in the world is because Adam sinned. So we have a direct thing right there. All physical suffering, all DNA disturbances, ultimately hinge from that bad decision in the Garden of Eden. If you take the Bible seriously. Of course, if you think it's Jewish myth, well then that's fine. But if we take the Bible seriously, then the fall is a direct source of physical disturbance in our bodies that we call death. We, have, we covered last time, we covered other causes. We said that the Galatians 6, 7, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The principle is we add to our suffering, we call it self-induced misery. 90% of the suffering probably in our lives we brought on ourselves by our stupidity and rebellion. And you kind of have to back off and laugh at it. This is why God calls us sheep because we're so stupid. And, you know, you just you say, yeah, I'm, I'm a dumb sheep. And so, look what I did. Although, many years ago, I lived next to a university where had, had uh, some of the guys in the congregation worked with raising sheep. They did experiments and so on, breeding them and so forth. And he took us over there, some members of the church, to show us all the stupid things the sheep do. And it was amazing how you could get them to, you get one of them out, and all the rest of them go follow him, you know, off a cliff into a pan. They had some cans of stuff there that they, they led the sheep through, and they were thrashing around in this place with, had water and, and buckets and everything, and they got one of them to do it. And then all the rest of them kept doing it. It was this fun, everybody was in hysterics watching this process go on, but it was a great thing, I've never forgotten in my rest of my life, is that that's a picture of Christians. And it's not a compliment to be called a sheep. We think it's so pretty, oh, Jesus holding the lamb. But really, it's a kind of a semi-insult. Good, good sense of humor for God. So, Galatians 6-7 is, Whatsoever we sow, that shall we also reap. And we said there were other things, and I, I brought in things, for example, hell. In Matthew 25, it says that God created the lake of fire, not for man, but for the devil and his angels. Well... If he created for the devil and angels, what are men doing there? Men get there because they reject the Savior. God in his grace provides every answer to every problem, and men choose to rebel. So, sorry about that, but that's direct cause. And we, we dealt with that, I think we had two or three others. Then we have more indirect, these are more subtle things, why suffering occurs. And the Bible recognizes that suffering in your life doesn't always come about because of something you did. Sometimes suffering comes about because God is intervening. In Acts 9, Paul suffered on the road to Damascus. What caused that? God's call to him. An evangelistic wake-up call. Yoo-hoo! So, when God has a wake-up call, sometimes it hurts. Because it's the only way he can get our attention. Then we have suffering that's induced because God wants us to grow. Jesus Christ himself, it says in Hebrews, that Jesus Christ suffered because 
uh, like we did. He, he uh, learned obedience by the things which he suffered, which is an amazing statement in Scripture. All right, now, one of the things uh, that we also covered last time was a strange cause of suffering, and that's the one reported in the book of Job. And that's the case where God introduces suffering in your life, in my life, because of external observers. It has nothing to do with what you're doing. But external people are watching, either unbelievers, believers, or angels even. And there are every once in a while these little tantalizing passages in the scripture. It's almost like we're living in a fishbowl. And God wants us to, to be there for other beings in the universe other than ourselves. And in some strange way, they, watching us, are learning things. Maybe how not to do it. Um, but they are learning valuable lessons from God through you, through me, in these suffering situations. So, again, because of limitations of time tonight, we don't have time, but I think we had about six of these. So, all total, we had 11 things we isolated about reasons why suffering happens. And you ultimately have to go back because God does not always tell us the details of why did he put the boundary of evil in your life over here and somebody else's boundaries over there. And, you know, sometimes you get kind of bent out of shape by this thing. At that point, you have no option other than to trust him in his goodness. And that's the last part of the message of Job. Because when God speaks to Job, it's very interesting. Job has question after question after question for 37 chapters in that book. You know what happens when God comes in? He gives him a little drill of about 70 questions. Here, answer these. You want me to answer your questions? Answer my questions first. And by the time God gets through, where was Job's questions? He forgot it. And he has such a, a vision of God and who he is that it just melts this other stuff away. He doesn't fight evil by fighting evil. We're going to see that again and again in the theme this year. Evil is not won. The conflict with evil is not won by fighting evil as such. The conflict is won by submitting to God. And then he takes care of the evil. It's an indirect approach that's used throughout Scripture. All right, so those are the two events that formed the first part of our time last year. So now what we want to do is we want to come to see some of the details of what that means as far as God and me, what, what I exist as a believer. So let me get a blank acetate here. And we'll draw a little chart. We're going to take some of God's attributes. You remember last time we covered a bunch of attributes of God and we said that God had various attributes and man had an analogous set because man is made in God's image. We won't go through all of God's attributes, but let's go through four of them. We said that God is sovereign. He controls all things. He works all things after the counsel of his will. It's not a committee that runs the universe. There's a God in heaven that runs the universe, and he doesn't ask uh, for a vote when he makes a decision. That's sovereignty. God is holy, meaning that God is, in his character, perfectly good and righteous. We said that God is love. A love that is unfathomable. That's an amazing thing. We said that God is omniscient. He knows all things. And we just took four of those attributes by way of illustration to show that when the Bible says that man is made in God's image, it means that man has analogous traits to these. And we said the counterpart to sovereignty over here in man's existence is choice. This is why we have a choice in salvation. This is why God the Holy Spirit comes and says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And he that believeth not is not saved, but is condemned. And so there's the choice. Man is responsible. Here is responsibility, if you want to put it this way. We don't use the word free will because that has all kinds of philosophic baggage to it. The counterpart to God's holiness shows up. Oh, and by the way, this choice is something under attack today. Because one of the... One of the ways that data is being interpreted, particularly in neuro studies, psycho neuro studies, um, neurological studies, is that the brain is simply a stimulus response machine. And that you have a, just chemical disturbances. And so 
if that is really the case, then nobody is responsible. In other words, you could go murder somebody in the 7-Eleven store and defend yourself in trial by saying, I just had a synapse problem in one of my neurons. Stimulus response. So the alternative to choice is some sort of SR, some sort of stimulus response mechanism. And that's why as Christians we cannot compromise at this point. If we offend the neuroscientist, then we offend him. But the price is too hard to, to go along with the, some stimulus response model of man. Uh, conscience. The corresponding thing to God's holiness is our conscience. We are born with a conscience. Every child has a conscience. Every person has a conscience. It's just that as we get adults, we have higher level skills to how to subdue the conscience. We get better and sneakier at ways of getting around the conscience. So, so we have conscience suppression skills that we get as we grow older. But basically, we still have a sense of right and wrong. And the reason we know that we do this is because in one 24-hour period, somewhere in our vocabulary, we use the word ought. O-U-G-H-T. This ought not to be. That is wrong. We're making moral judgments all the time. Why? Because our conscience won't let us do anything else. So man has choice, which corresponds to God's sovereignty. He has conscience, which reminds him that a holy God exists over him to which he is responsible. Men experience various degrees of love. Of course, the opposite of this, let me, let me go through the opposites. The opposite of choice in the, in the world, the baloney people, want to go with some sort of stimulus response replacement for genuine choice. In conscience, what we usually try to do is that that's society, or it's in my genes, or some other source, I'm responsible or causing this. But the God says, no, the conscience is inside every soul. And it's that conscience that we will be judged upon. It's like a tape recorder. Tape recording everything there. You made a choice here on Tuesday afternoon at such and such a time. It was your choice, your choice, your choice, your choice. Choice, 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 choice. And you knew, 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 knew. No ignorance here. All choice. So, this is, the, this is conscience. And it's not anchored in society. I mean, if it was anchored in society, what would Robin Crusoe do? Go and live on a desert island. And then you'd get rid of your conscience. Well, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't work. So, love. What's the opposite of love? The opposite of love is not hate, actually. The, what love needs is security. And so you can't have love without some sort of security. So, what happens here, a distortion of this, is self-security. A person seeks self-security because you can't get water out of the top of the glass if the glass isn't full. And the glass isn't going to be full if I'm insecure. If I sense that, you know, I've got to defend myself. I've got to defend myself. I've got to defend myself. Well, as long as I'm in a defensive mode, I am not going to be giving to much of anybody in my environment. So what cuts away and destroys love in the human race is a high senses of insecurity. Everybody's out for themselves. Why are they out for themselves? They protect themselves. But that's why it gets back to my security has to be in the Lord. Can't be in man, can't be in society, and so forth. All right, then we have the other correspondence to omniscience, and that's the one where I showed you the chart, is that we know things. And we know we know things. We have a knowledge of the universe, and that that knowledge is a situation where we say, this is true for all time, all places. Absolute truth. All right, those are the analogies. We also said last time that because man is made in God's image, that leads to other things, that leads to the fact that we have certain social institutions. And these become critical as by way of introduction to Genesis 9. So we want to review these too. These we called the divine institutions. And we call them divine institutions versus arbitrary social conventions. Because that's the battle today in the world. Is human responsible labor, for example, marriage, family, 
is the shape of those things a permanent feature of human existence, rooted into human existence by God's divine institution? Or are these things arbitrary social conventions? Now let me talk about each of those three words. Arbitrary social conventions. Arbitrary means they could just as well be another way. There's no reason they have to be this way rather than that way. They're plastic. They're rubber. They can be stretched, turned, moved. If 51% of the people now vote that they're going to redo marriage and redefine marriage, it can be redefined because it's plastic. It's not a permanent structure. That's the debate today. See, every area of doctrine, every area of truth in God's scripture, you'll see when you get looking at it, is under attack. And we're wondering why we have such a hard time winning people to Christ. Why is it that we have a hard time in our personal lives? Why is it we're having all these difficulties? Well, we're having all these difficulties because every frontier of knowledge and truth is under assault today. All right, so marriage and responsible labor. We hardly any in our country have a doctrine of labor. You know, it's amazing. We, we have really lost a sense of the work ethic. All areas of society. White collar, blue collar... All areas of society, white collar, blue collar, wherever you go. And the idea that a craftsman could enjoy his labor and produce something that he loved, it was part of him, it was his life, it's gone. When's my paycheck? Isn't big enough. What are my bennies? All this stuff. That's important stuff, of course, because an evaluation of the worth of your labor. But the point is that our, our work ethic has gone away because labor itself becomes an arbitrary social convention. Isn't that what the Marxist economist has told us? Now let's go to marriage. Obviously, we don't have to go too far to see that one. So not only do we have the homosexual lobby trying to lobby in and to, to redefine marriage this way, we've had uh, people living with each other all over the place and perfectly acceptable, so we you know, make the world safe for fornication. And then we have the family... And then this has been torn apart by divorce upon divorce upon divorce or by brutality in the family and so forth. So this thing's under attack. So after you attack this and you attack this and you attack this, there isn't too much left. And where you have a country where all these things are under attack, you're going to have a lot more suffering because the whole thing's going to come unseamed. You cannot continue to attack these institutions and have a society worth, call, worth the name left. It isn't going to happen. You're just going to have a mob, a mess. But you're not going to have a society or a civilization left as these things are concentrated. Because why? Because God instituted these. Genesis chapter 3 is where all three of these are instituted. Genesis chapter 3. And God didn't institute them as an experiment. <clears throat> all right, now we have the last part of the thing that we did last year, we said, okay, God then, after the fall, creation of the fall, he intervened. And we have these last two, next two events, the, the global flood of Noah and the covenant that came after Noah. It's at this point, this year, this fall, with this first set of notes, that we pick up the narrative in Genesis chapter 9. So, as we go into the last part of our, our hour together tonight, I want to cover and remind you of these truths of Noah's flood and the covenant. So, these, this forms the linkage and the, and the, and the uh, continuity with what we're going to get into in more detail. The whole issue of the flood was an issue of whether or not God, holds, God can intervene. And we said that the flood was a, was a cataclysm. The flood was an example of salvation, judgment salvation. So the flood then, and is used in the New Testament, becomes a type of all of God's judgments with particular attention to the second advent of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Now why did he, of all things, pick up the event of the flood as a prototype of his second return? Because it was global because it was an intervention that was catastrophic in nature. It affected the geophysical universe. It wasn't just somebody's bathtub running over in Babylon. This was a worldwide global flood, implications of which are profound geophysically.
So we have the judgment of God, and we see a picture of God's judgment. I sometimes abbreviate God, that's just the Greek word, the Greek letter theta, for theos. God's judgment. Alright, so now in God's judgment, what do we notice? We notice it has certain elements. The same elements happen with the gospel, the same elements happen with Exodus, and the same elements happen with Noah's flood. Here they are. You always have grace before judgment. God never judges without warning. And for 120 years, he told people, and he told people, and he told people, this is going to come to an end, folks. You know, check your calendar, because I'm counting down. Grace before judgment. When God does judge, he always has perfect discrimination between believer and unbeliever. It's not between the rich and the poor. It's not between black and white. It's not between smart people and stupid people. It's between those who have trusted in the Lord and those who have rejected him. It's perfect discrimination. We always have in God's judgments one way and only one way of salvation. There weren't two arcs. There was one. And it was designed exactly the way God wanted it to be. And no one was saved who was outside of the ark, period. They may have been brilliant people. They may have been rich people. They have been members of particular races. Didn't make any difference. They had not trusted in, in the Lord. And so, therefore, they were excluded. There was one and only one way of salvation. Another feature of God's judgments is it affects nature as well as man. When Noah's flood came, it affected nature in a drastic way, and we're going to study some of those ways in Genesis 9, 10, and 11, in this first set of notes. Some of the features of our physical universe today that are utterly different than anything that the people between Adam and Noah ever saw. We live in a new universe, created as a result of that fall. And so in the future, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Salvation, folks, and this is the point, I want, why I'm making this point. We can kind of asterisk this. There's a sub-point to this point, and that is, by saying this, we avoid something. By saying that God judges nature as well as man, we prevent a subtle reinterpretation of the Christian faith that makes it psychological. Subjective. Well, Christianity is a matter of the heart. Christianity is an internal religion. Christianity doesn't say anything about the trees, the moon, the stars, the physical universe. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. The Bible says something about everything because God created it. And therefore, when he judges, he judges everything. And finally, a fifth feature of God's judgment, which is common to the Noah's flood, common to the Exodus, common to the gospel, is that people are saved by faith. They are not saved on the basis of their works, how many good deeds they have done, or by how proud they are, how clean they are, what their record is. They are saved because they trust in whatever the provision is. The provision in the flood was the ark. The provision in the Exodus was blood on the door. The provision in Jesus Christ's gospel is trusting his work on the cross. So these features are always there. So we study that as a model, and the flood becomes a great model and a grand model of judgment salvation. Notice, too, that these two words go together. If the world is evil, then you can't have salvation, can you, without judgment? Because if the world is abnormal and evil, God has to reach down and disturb it. That's why, if you look on your notes tonight, the title of this course is the Part 3, Disruptive Truths of God's Kingdom. You remember last year, the theme, and I guess I never put out the title page last I guess it was too cheap to put it out. Um, the title page was Buried Truths of Origins. Because in those days, the early part of the history has been buried. Buried in human tradition, buried psychologically, and so forth. But now we're talking about things that can't be buried so easily, and they disrupt our lives. Salvation is an interruption. When God reaches down, I'm sure everyone here who's a believer can give a testimony of the fact that when the Holy Spirit worked in your life, he, it was an interruption. There were things, it was disturbances. He disturbed the pattern and the pathway that you were in and changed it. That's why God's kingdom is disruptive. So that's what we mean here with judgment salvation. These two words 
go together. And finally, we came last time to the covenant. The covenant that was made with Noah and all life. Notice the covenant. It was made not just with Noah, but it was made with all life. And in this grand covenant, we have a picture of the future when God ends human history. Think about the analogies. After the flood, God promises Noah something. What does he promise? I will never what? I will never send a flood to what? To destroy all men. Think about that for a minute. Do you know what that does? Let's, let's, let's try a little thought experiment here for 30 seconds. Let's suppose that you go home tonight and we turn on our television, the 10, 11 o'clock news, and astronomers have reported that an asteroid is set on collision course with planet Earth. We have no way of escape from the planet. That means in 36 hours, the Earth will be destroyed in all humanity. You know why we can say buzz off? If we believe the Noahic Covenant? God is not going to destroy the human race. The human race will be saved until he takes care of it with the return of Christ. So the human race is not going away. It may be decimated, as it is in the book of Revelation and Tribulation, but it is not going away. The human race is guaranteed an existence that will move on to eternity. Included in that guarantee is that before the throne of God in the book of Revelation, members of every race, every tongue, every culture will survive and be represented there. Genocides will not prevent the survival of a remnant from every single race that was going to be defined in Genesis chapter 9 and 10. All 70 subsets of the human race that's listed there. Okay. So we have this grand contract with Noah that is controlling our existence. The Word of God, in other words, is not just controlling our religious life. It's controlling the orbits around the sun of the asteroids. The Word of God is controlling the trajectory of Earth through space. The Word of God is controlling the physics of the universe. The Word of God is controlling every area that His Word will prevail. He works all things after His counsel, and He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So every fact, every law, every molecule is under His control. That's the corollary to the Noahic Covenant. He can't keep the Noahic Covenant if we have loose molecules running around. Because they get out of control and overwhelm. Chaos overwhelms the system. So God can't make any promise unless he controls every aspect, every molecule, everywhere, at all through time. So we said in conclusion that when this covenant was introduced, God reinstituted, this time, four divine institutions instead of three. Divine institution number one, divine institution number two, divine institution number three, and divine institution number four. God reinstituted labor. God said that there is responsible labor, that man is to have dominion over the earth, but he changed it. There was one little addition to this institution. And this institution was modified after the flood, such that man would now eat animal flesh. It doesn't mean that man, in his rebellion, didn't eat animals before. It just means that after the flood... It was authorized, a meat diet was authorized. You say, well, why? I thought vegetarian was healthy. Apparently not. It's remarkable that the one place in the Bible that deals with prohibition of food links it to the doctrine of demons. And it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's a remarkable verse. And it says that where you have to pro somebody telling you, you can't eat this, and you can't eat that, and you can't eat something else, and celibacy, of all things, the doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just interesting that Paul did that. Now, this first divine institution that we survive by eating animals that we originally were supposed to care for. Why is there this reversal with the first divine institution? I suggested last time the reason for this 
is because God in our civilization is making, preparing the way for the gospel by making us have to, every 24 hours, eat flesh and destroy life. Our existence depends on death. So all of civilization is defined in terms of death. And what does that speak of? What is that pointing to? Who was it that said, eat my flesh and drink my blood and you will have life? Isn't that pointing to the gospel? And so the civilization after the flood, and I, I really seriously think there's a lot of psychology involved in this, and this is why you have this, this strange resurrection of vegetarianism. It's not just a health kick. Yes, vegetarians can be healthy. I'm not saying you can't exist that way. I am saying, however, to decree that as a universal truth for everybody is wrong. Meets Genesis 1. Genesis 1 text is repeated, and then he adds this little phrase to it. You can read it in Genesis 9. DI number two, we said, that was modified in one sense, not really modified, but marriage became the source of the divisions in the human race. We have four women who, if their races pre-existed Noah, then it was the women that brought the diverse genes in because the three sons of Noah shared the genetic structures with their dad. So they married these women, and it was the women who largely brought this in. And it's remarkable that in the mythology of the world, the mythology, certain myths speak of the four matriarchs. The red matriarch, the white matriarch, the yellow matriarch, and the black matriarch. Now that's just a, that's a pagan tradition. But I find it fascinating that there are only four. And there were only four women that survived the flood. Remarkable. So, we, and we know from what we know of biology that they had to have been the ones that introduced heterogeneous genetic material. So, that's number two. Number three. Out of divine institution number three will come 70 nations. And that's our study next time as we go into the diversification of the human race. That one family, the original family of our civilization, started what we call all the different cultures of the world. And then finally, God added this, this guy right here, the fourth divine institution, and that really torques a lot of people. And it's another, so to speak, reminder of our sin. The fourth divine institution is civil authority defined by the right to take life. We don't like that. That is not nice talk. And today, unfortunately... Capital punishment has become very unpopular because of the way it's done. Poor people can't afford a lawyer. They're the ones who can capitally punish. The rich guys get off. But that's a distortion of an institution that was godly. God defined government authority in terms of taking life. He didn't define it in terms of tax. We'll see later that the taxation in the Mosaic Law comes from the capital punishment. It comes out of the ability the government can take your life. It can take the products of your life. That's the justification for taxes. In Romans 13, read the sequence in Romans 13. Which comes first, taxes or the sword? People like to say, some certain pacifists argue that, oh, well, the sword in Romans 13 is just symbolic. And Dr. Clark, Gordon Clark, a Christian philosopher, once was in a debate with, uh, with a person. He came up with the greatest response I've ever heard. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that the sword in Romans 13 is symbolic. Because you know what? It's in the same passage with taxes. So, the point is, you can't have one without the other. They're both there. And it's a struggle, yes. But the fourth divine institution, remember, gives into the hands of man the sword of judgment. It doesn't mean the sword is going to be wielded in a just way, necessarily. Because who was it that had the most unfair trial in all of history? The son of the father who introduced capital punishment. Think about it. Did God in his omniscience know his own son would die by an improper application of capital punishment? He sure did. And he even made it the way of salvation. So, we have the introduction of capital punishment. And this was a changeover because before Genesis 9, the only other time sword is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 3. Anybody remember what it is? There's one time prior to, prior to the institution of government when sword is mentioned, a sword of judgment, and it's held by a creature. It was the cherubs 
at guarding the gate to Eden. And it apparently means that had any human being tried to invade God's domain, they would have been capitally punished by an angel in that strange era prior to the flood. Angels had the right of capital punishment. Whether that was how God ruled, we don't know, because the Bible doesn't give us details. But we do know that after the flood, that he gave this into the hands of man. Now our study will begin in the notes that we have. We're going to deal with the environment immediately after the flood, and we're going to deal with the diversification, a fascinating story of how the human population went out into the continents, and the loss of truth and why you have tribes that sometimes remember Noah, sometimes forget him, and so forth. That's all leading up to our study of why did God call Abraham? Why did he call the nation Israel into existence? It has all to do with this. Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you that you are a God who leads history forward moment by moment. That we are not abandoned creatures that you love us with an everlasting love, that you have provided grace upon grace upon grace over and over and over again, that you have provided ways of salvation physically and the way spiritually, and you have rehearsed that gospel over and over and over again. We're thankful because we know that naturally we are ungrateful, and it's only as the Holy Spirit warms our hearts to the truth of your word that we can graciously respond and thank you for our so great salvation in Christ. Amen.